Have you ever seen one of those people on the street corner with a big sign, maybe a sandwich board over them, saying, it's the end of the world. The end of the world is near. The end of the world has come. Anybody ever seen those? I've seen a few. You know, they're not wrong. They're not entirely wrong. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24 today, and that is the challenge that Jesus gives to his disciples. The end is near. And we need to live with the end in sight. This needs to shape and form our perspective on our world, on our lives, now that the end is coming. And the end is coming soon. Now, some Christians, some Christian authors, have made careers out of predicting the end times. And they sell lots of books. And they get on the radio and on Christian television. And people sell all their belongings. And they follow these people. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, I'm going to strongly suggest, and you'll see as we go through that, that, that is wrong. That mentality of Christians predicting when the end is going to come is wrong. Jesus himself says that it's wrong. That's not what we're to be about. Studying the end times is not to lay out some graph or some chart or to figure out some date or to look at everything going on in the world and say, because of this and this and this, Jesus is coming in two weeks. That is wrong. But we do need to keep in our minds, Jesus is coming soon. How do I live now? How do I live with the end in sight. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. We're going to go through the whole thing today, and I need to say up front, we're going to skip through it quickly. We're not going to be able to look at every single nitty-gritty detail here. I want to hit some of the highlights and understand the impact of what Jesus is telling his disciples and what we need to learn today. So if you're one of those people, you've got the end times prophetic chart in the back of your Bible and you're trying to fill it out or you're going to check everything I say against it, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Okay, That's not what we're focusing on today. How do we live now with the attitude and mindset and priorities that the end is in sight. It is coming soon. And the first thing is we pick up the story in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has spent time in Jerusalem. He's gone in. We've had the triumphant entry. We know it as Palm Sunday, or at least we celebrate it, remember it on Palm Sunday. He enters Jerusalem and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're kind of saying, this is the Messiah. But then as the week goes on, he's not doing what they thought. He's challenging their religious leaders. He's arguing with their religious leaders. He goes into the temple and turns over a bunch of things and causes a great ruckus and makes a mess because they have lost sight of the true worship of God. And as the week goes on, he teaches and he challenges. But what he's not doing is overthrowing the Roman Empire and rescuing the people from their oppression. That's what he's not doing because he has come to rescue them from a much greater oppression, the oppression of sin and death. 
We pick up the story in chapter 24 as Jesus and his disciples are walking away from the temple in Jerusalem. And the disciples make a comment. They're looking around them and they make a comment about what they're saying. So let's pick it up in chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples or when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, Matthew kind of tones this down. He says, well, the disciples just sort of called Jesus's attention to it. Mark helps us to understand their attitude in this. He says in chapter 13, verse 1, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. That's what's going on in their heads. They are deeply impressed by the significance of the structure of the temple in Jerusalem. This is a very impressive building. Herod the Great built this building to kind of appease the Jews. As far as we can tell, he spared no expense. The stones were absolutely massive. The structure was magnificent. There was gold everywhere. It was a sight to behold. And these disciples were... I think we could say today, most of them were kind of like country boys. They were from Galilee. Now, that was up north. You know, in the United States, we would call the country down south. But for them, it was up north. They would have been to Jerusalem here and there, but they didn't grow up in and around it. And so they only saw it periodically, and they were just so impressed. I grew up around Chicago. And occasionally would go downtown. It was just so amazing to see all these enormous buildings and just, wow, it's so great. And then I went to college downtown Chicago and my perspective drastically changed. When you see them every day, it, I mean, yeah, they're impressive, but you live there. It's not that big a deal. You just walk down the streets every day. You don't go, oh, Sears Tower. I'm not calling it the Willis Tower. I can't do it. It's the Sears Tower forever and ever. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay. It's a Midwest thing. So these guys were impressed, and and they're, they're kind of pointing to Jesus, and they're saying, hey, check this out. Isn't this magnificent? And Jesus says, do you see all these? Not one stone will be left on another. He says the temple is going to be destroyed. And about 30 years later, that's exactly what happens. The Romans come in and they sack Jerusalem. They set fire and demolish the temple. You know, we look around at our life. We look around at our world at what our hands have made or what other people have made. And we are so impressed and we're so tempted to look at our world and say, what magnificent buildings, what gigantic building blocks. Surely this will last forever. And we need to hit the pause button and say, no, that is an illusion. The things that we make and the things made by humanity in general are not permanent. Only what God makes will last. What we make, what humanity makes will pass away. And this sets up the rest of the chapter. The disciples, understandably so, have a question. When? When is this going to happen? And Jesus is going to answer that by talking about the beginning of the end. Look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, 
The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they've left Jerusalem. And as Jesus so often does, he's, he's gathered just with his disciples and he's teaching them. They come to him with a question and he's answering their question. We want to know, much like the disciples, we want to know when. Sometimes that's with a good attitude. We, we want to be ready. We want to be prepared. Sometimes, I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's much easier to talk about the end times and the charts and the when and the how than to actually live now. We put our perspective in the wrong place. Some, if you're like me, I am a natural procrastinator. And knowing that the end times is out there sometime, it's like, well, then I've got plenty of time to be ready for it then. Really can just live now however I want. And and when that time comes, well, then I'll really step it up for Jesus. And Jesus is going to warn against that very attitude. I would like to read Jesus' response in its entirety. We're going to read verses 4 all the way through verse 35. I guess that's not the whole thing, but it's the beginning of what he's talking about. You can follow along in your own Bibles. I'll try to put it up on the screen for us. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to take their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so there will be, or so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. 
Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. There's a lot going on here. I want to look at six important things that Jesus is talking about. Six important things that we need to hold on to as we live with the end in sight. And the first is that Jesus is coming to take his people home. And I know that seems very elementary to Christians. Well, of course Jesus is coming. No, no. Jesus is coming. Well, yeah, I know. Do we? Do we truly know that he's coming and truly accept and live the truth that Jesus is coming? In verse 27, he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite title for himself. He is telling his disciples, I am coming back. In verse 30, he says, everyone will see him coming. Nobody's going to miss it. Nobody's going to wake up one day and go, oh, I think Jesus might have come. You know, there are systems of religion that say, well, Jesus has already come back. Well, that's foolishness. Jesus says no one will miss his coming. It will be as obvious as lightning in the sky that is visible for miles around. Or, and I know this is kind of a weird illustration, but they would have understood it more. They would look out and they could see for way off in the distance. They would see birds cycling and circling. And they knew there was a dead body out there. His point is, it will be visible. No one's going to miss the coming of the Lord. In verse 31, he says, not only is he coming, but that he is coming to gather his elect. Those chosen by God, those who follow the Lord, saved by Jesus Christ, they will be gathered. Jesus, we learn in Matthew, is God. He is Emmanuel. Jesus, or uh, Matthew rather, tells us that early on. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus is God with us. Matthew chapter 1, he introduces Jesus as the promised king, the Messiah, the king who has come. Later on, he explains even his name, Jesus, means he saves. Jesus Christ is Lord over all history and his plans never fail. And when he says he is coming back, guess what it means? This is really technical. It means he is coming back. That's what it means. Jesus Christ is coming back to take his people home. That's the first thing that Jesus really emphasizes. I'm not doing these in any order here, but another thing he emphasizes, and again, we don't want to hear this, things will get worse. Things will get worse. Verses 4 through 8, he talks about wars among the nations, famines and earthquakes. We are sinners living in a sinful world. 
Romans chapter 8 talks about even the earth, the, the ecosystem, the nature of earth. It is even condemned and cursed because of sin. The world is broken. Culture is broken. Society is broken. Individuals are broken. We are sinners living in a sinful world. And because of that, things will get worse. Sin is the original pandemic. And it continues to spread. And there is no thing that we can do that will stop it. The thing that needs to be done is salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what we need in this end times as things will continue to get worse. Verse 9, he talks about the suffering of his followers. I preached through First Peter a year ago, two years ago. I lose all track of time. We went through First Peter at some point. That's the whole point of 1 Peter. Peter, who's here listening to Jesus saying this after Jesus has died, risen from the grave, ascended into heaven. Peter is preaching to the early church and the main theme in his letter is you are going to suffer. Followers of Christ, trusting Christ, hoping in Christ, but living in this sinful world are going to suffer. We're going to struggle and we will be persecuted. And Jesus says in verse 12, there's an outcome of this. Love of most will grow cold. Love will grow cold. I believe Jesus is still talking about his followers here. And for followers of Jesus Christ, persecution can either bring courage or callousness. It can either bring faithfulness or fruitlessness. We can get in a hand-wringing mentality as we look at the news, we scroll on the internet, and we say, the world is falling apart. Can you believe it? And we lash out in anger, and we speak in anger to everybody around us, what's wrong with the world, and how the world would be better if we were in charge. And as we do so, love grows cold. We fail to love those around us, and we fail to love our Creator and our Savior. And Jesus calls us in verse 13 to stand firm. I wish I had more time in the sermon to talk about this. This is the Christian's response to persecution. It is not fighting. It is not lashing out. It is certainly not complaining or wallowing in misery. It is Stand firm. You say I can't be a Christian, I'm going to be a Christian. You say I can't speak about Jesus Christ, I've got to keep speaking about Jesus Christ. You say God doesn't exist, I know he does. You say this word doesn't matter and it's outdated, I believe this is the word of God. Stand firm. Christians, we have gotten very good at vocally complaining And I think we are losing sight all too often of standing firm. Our attitude, our actions, and our words declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can we say we believe in a God who is in control when every news thing that comes on, we say, oh my goodness, it's all falling apart. A, yes, it's all falling apart. We know that. Jesus said so. And B, it's not completely falling apart because our God reigns. Things will get 
worse. Another thing Jesus emphasizes is that we must beware of the danger of deception. When the Son of God says, watch out, beware, we need to listen to that. We need to stop and say, I am susceptible to this. The church is susceptible to this. The world is susceptible to this. Watch out that no one deceives you. And he says, many false messiahs will come. Now we read that and I think it's easy to say, well, you know, if somebody stood up and claimed to be the Messiah from God and the new Jesus Christ, of course, that guy's crazy. I wouldn't follow him. That's a cult. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. But how many times do we pick up the new bestseller that promises something great in your life right now or a secret that if you just knew this, you would be happier. Here's how to be happy and healthy and wealthy. How many churches are selling that same lie under the guise of the gospel. Those are false messiahs. Trust in this and you will be saved. That's not Jesus. Don't fall for it. Don't be deceived. Some will say, here's the Messiah. Come here. I've got what you need. Don't be deceived by the lie Also, don't be deceived by these Christians who peddle these lies about end times prophecies and want to turn our focus there in all ways to figure out using grand math equations, this is when Jesus Christ will come back. No, you don't know. We'll talk about that in a moment. But also understand that it's not some secret code. Christ will come back when Christ comes back and you won't miss it. It will be obvious. We don't need the secret code and the charts and to figure out every little detail. Christ is coming back when he wants to come back. Don't be deceived. We must be aware of the danger of deception. Another thing Jesus emphasizes is that the time of the disciples is the beginning of the end. And that's why I said earlier, these people that say the end is near, they're not wrong. The end has been near ever since Jesus came. And he tells his disciples that they are living in the beginning of the end. He uses this illustration of birth pains. And the whole point of that is that the birth is coming. The pains show that something is coming. The birth pains that they lived through, which were horrible, talk about that in a second, show that the end when Jesus returns, in Jesus' way of thinking, is soon. Now here we are 2,000 years later and we want to argue with him. But God is the God of heaven and earth and all eternity. 2,000 years is a blip. And he's saying, understand, I'm coming soon. In verse 34, he tells them, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Scholars have loved to debate that. What exactly is he talking about? I think primarily in this passage, he has been emphasizing to his disciples this horrific time that they're going to go through and that that is the beginning of the end, that they will begin to experience all of the end times. We are still experiencing it. Those at the very end, when Jesus comes back, will experience it as well. In Jesus' mind, it is all part of one thing. 
I said earlier in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. I want you to listen to how one commentator describes that. Around 70 AD, Roman armies began surrounding the city of Jerusalem to overtake it. And when they did take the city, the Roman army destroyed the temple and made sacrifices to false gods, declaring Titus, the Roman emperor, to be supreme. Daniel 12.1 refers to a time like this. There will be a time of distress such has never occurred since nations came into being until that time. This is the same language that's used in Matthew 24.21. The time of Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70 was a horrifying, ghastly time. It was a virtual bloodbath of Jewish men and women who were pummeled by the Roman army. The Jewish historian Josephus describes the savagery, slaughter, disease, and famine that marked the Jewish people during those years, parents resorted to cannibalism with their own children, and many Jews were taken into slavery. The death toll was in the millions, and all of this took place about 40 years after Jesus said these words to his disciples. That is a sobering truth. These disciples looked at the temple and said, that will never fall. And Jesus says, it will, and very soon. The disciples were going to live to see a part of the end times, and it would be horrific. They saw wars and hardship, famine and persecution. They saw their capital city ransacked and demolished and burned and their countrymen killed. It felt like the end of the world. Because it was. It was the beginning of the end. We see here that Jesus tells his disciples that they are living in the beginning of the end. Another thing that Jesus points out, though, is that we have a mission in these hard times. It's easy to just sit down and be overwhelmed and say, I can't go on. This possibly can't last. I I got nothing to do. I can't change the world. Yet Jesus emphasizes we have a mission. In verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you know what Jesus says at the end of Matthew after he has died and risen again? And just before he sends into heaven, he tells his followers, therefore, go into the whole world. What world? This world that he's talking about in Matthew 24 that's going to persecute them and put them to death. He says, go into that world. This world that history is crumbling and falling apart. He says, go into that world and preach the gospel. We have a mission even here at the end of the world. The final thing that Jesus emphasizes here is that the only thing permanent are his words. God's word is our anchor of truth. He says in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. How sad is it that so many Christians and so many churches want to take the words on these pages as optional and up for debate, and they want to vote on which ones apply to us and which ones don't, and they want to say that they should change because of our changing culture and our more modern sensibilities, and they want to pretend that we can just rip pages out of this and it won't matter. 
But Jesus says otherwise. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 1997, the band R.E.M. came out with a song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And in the chorus, they added a tagline, And I feel fine. Ironically, it was our class song graduating from Moody Bible Institute. I don't know who picked that. I didn't get to vote. It was catchy, though. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It is the end of the world. It has been ever since Jesus Christ came, and it will be the end of the world all the way up until when Jesus Christ returns. We must stand firm in our faith. And now Jesus turns from their time period and what they're going to focus on and primarily what they're going to go through, and he looks further down in history to the day that he will come back. And he emphasizes how we should live. Look at verses 36 to 41. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus says very clearly, and Christians, please hear this. No one knows when Jesus is coming back. God didn't give us an equation to solve or figure out. You are not super spiritual if you are trying to predict the end times. In fact, I would say you are being disobedient to the Son of God. Furthermore, Jesus himself said that while he was on this earth, even he didn't know when he was coming back. Let that blow your mind for a second. He says that his coming is going to be sudden and unexpected. At any moment, he describes the people in Noah's time. They weren't going, man, I hear a flood's coming. I think a flood's coming. I think we should be ready for a flood. No, they were going about their day. They were on their way to Wegmans and boom, flood. They were unprepared. Jesus takes that and says, it'll be like that when I come back. You will not expect it and it will come suddenly. How, though, how can Jesus himself not know if he is truly God, equal to God, knows all that God knows? Jesus has two natures. He is 100% God, complete divinity, knows the mind of God, is sovereign over all creation. But he equally has a human side. He is 100% human. And there are times that he chooses not to display or use his divinity, but he becomes limited by his humanity. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 lays this out for us. Who, being in very nature God, he's speaking of Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus voluntarily chose to not tap into his divinity and use it to his advantage. We see this in many times. The the devil comes and he tempts Jesus. Turn these stones into bread. Could Jesus do that? Absolutely. Did he? No. He chose not to. Now, there are other times he chooses to display his divinity. Every single miracle is a display of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And when he takes his disciples up on the mountain and we see the transfiguration and they see his glory, that's a display of his divinity. But here in Matthew, Jesus makes a choice. He chooses not to tap into that part of his nature. And I think we need to learn from this. If it was important enough for the Son of God to say, I choose not to know when this is going to take place, how dare we? Do we think that we are better than the Son of God? And I know I'm speaking to a vast minority here, just a few people, but there are some that get so caught up in the end times and reading and when and predicting. Stop it! That's not the point. The point of the end times is how to live now with the end times in view, not to figure out how it's all going to happen then. And this leads to the second important thing, verses 42 to 44. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also, or so you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is how we respond to this truth. Be ready at all times. And I love this illustration. It's actually very funny. You know, if if I owned a huge estate and and somebody called me up and said, "Um, you know, by the way, in one month, uh, two o'clock in the morning, I'm going to be breaking in and trying to steal all your belongings, I'd say, great. You know, I I tell all my security people, hey, you've got a month off and uh, just show up at this day, Uh, you know, maybe an hour early. We want to be ready for this guy. And just come at that time, and he's going to break in at that time, and we'll be ready for him. What Jesus is saying is that's not the way it works. You don't know when the thief is coming. You must always be ready. That's what he's saying about the end times. You don't know when Jesus is coming. You must always be ready. Always be ready. Look at 45 to 51. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is saying is is that we fall into this temptation of thinking, well, maybe someday Jesus will come back. Maybe not. I don't really care. It's so far out there. It doesn't affect me now. I'm just going to live how I want now. 
And we go living as if there are no consequences, as if Jesus is not coming back. And I think if each one of us really look at our own hearts and our own priorities, we would say that we easily fall into this trap. Jesus says that there are harsh and eternal consequences for those who live as if he is not coming back at all. We need to be faithful now because Jesus is coming back. We must always be ready. This world, everything you see, every chair in this room, every carpet tile, every ceiling tile that we had to cut a quarter inch off of two sides in the entire building, it's all passing away. American culture, American politics, the American nature or nation is passing away. Our economy and all of its priorities and the pressure it puts on us is passing away. All of it. Don't get caught up in the illusion of permanence of things in this world, but rather live with the end in sight. Let me ask you, how would you live if you knew your Savior, your King, and the judge of this world was coming back at any moment? How would you live now? And I know sometimes people will say, well, I would quit work. Somebody might say, well, I wouldn't do the laundry. Wouldn't have to weed the garden. I mean, why bother? I think my wife would vote for that one. She's got horrible poison ivy from weeding our garden. I I let her do it. She really wanted to. (laughs) People say, oh, I would just quit. But remember what Jesus said, though. We should be found faithful when he returns. We should not just give up living. That's not the way to live with the end in sight. The way to live with the end in sight is to live on purpose. To change our priorities. To live on the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ through our work, through our families, through how we take care of those things that God has done or has given us, and especially through all of our relationships. Live with the end in sight. I want to finish with one passage out of Revelation 21 to give you another picture of the end. Jesus the end of the Bible, John records that he is shown this picture from the Son of God. And John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, "Ah, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So I have to ask you, as we conclude talking about living with the end in sight, I have to ask you, are you saved by Jesus Christ? Because nothing else really matters when it comes to the end times and prophecies or preparing our life. None of that matters until we can answer that question. Are you saved by Jesus Christ? Because all the judgment that's going to come, all the horror of this world, the only solution is to be saved by Jesus Christ. Not just doing right things, not just being a good person, not even just showing up to church. Are you saved by the Son of God? Have you said, I am a lost sinner and I need Jesus? He is my Savior and my Lord, and I will live for Him. Are you saved by Jesus Christ? And I hope and pray that most of you can say, absolutely. And to those of you that would answer that way, yes, I'm saved by Jesus. Here's the follow-up question. Are you living as if He is coming back soon? Live with the end in sight. I called this living with the end in sight part one because he continues this theme of being ready, always ready in chapter 25. And we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, this is such a sobering topic to live with the end in sight, to live the truth that your son is coming back. No matter what's going on on the television or in the news or with pandemics or politics, you are Lord Most High. And your son reigns eternally on his throne. And he is coming back to take those who belong to him, those saved by him, to be with you forever. In this world as we know it and all the things that we see Many of the things that we hold most dear or that we are impressed with or agonized by will pass away. And so I pray that our focus would be in the proper place on the salvation and the glory and the declaration of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen.